Hey there, and welcome to the Refuge Podcast. We're a podcast of Crossroads Community Church here in Nampa, Idaho. And here at the church, we believe in being a place of refuge, transformation, and partnership with God. My name is Charlie, and I'm a pastor here at the church. And I'm Scott, and I'm one of the partners here at Crossroads. That's right, and we are closing out Ichad, my friend. I know it's it's hard to see it go, but yeah. it's, it's been a great series, but this is the last week of Ichad with Jim. Yes, and so I feel so alone now that we're done with it. That's right. Oh, my gosh, that was terrible. <laughs> yeah, we do. We feel so much more. Actually, we don't feel alone. Yeah, we, we don't feel alone. You're right. I should we say know, that. We know that we're never alone. We're but yeah, never. as we went through this series, what are some things that stuck out to you that you know maybe changed your mind about some things or were really impactful to you? I just, I like looking at the uh, concept, this one single concept, from the perspective of several different people, Um, whether it's, you know, today's sermon, The Woman at the Well, or last week's, uh, David and Goliath, or whether we're going all the way back to Gideon, um, or from several different perspectives, and a whole bunch of people uh, are either realizing, oh my goodness, I'm not God. Or they're recognizing faithfully who God is. And it's kind of like in everyday life, we all have to do that. We all have to come to our own realization. Charlie, I'm not God. And it's just such a wonderful, liberating experience to realize that I'm not God. And I don't have to worry about um, taking care of things. And there is someone who can take care of everything who is p- perfectly willing to do so. Mm. It, it's, it's a wonderful feeling that everything is well when we know that the one who is in charge um, ought to be in charge and who wants to be in charge. I thought it was cool that, you know, such an important passage in... The Bible is the Shema, something that, you know, for the Israelites and even for us today has incredible meaning. But when we read the words that God is alone, God is one, we're like, what does that mean? You know, and now we have a whole bunch of stories that really point that out. So now when our people read that and, you know, understand why that's significant, they have, you know, some examples in their pocket to say, oh, that's what it means that God is alone, that God is one. I thought that was a really cool, you know, product of Jim and and our team taking the time to really talk about this, which I thought was cool. All right, well, we're going to listen to the final Alone Yichad uh, sermon, and then we will get together and talk about it. If you're new, um, welcome. We just uh, appreciate you being here with us. Uh, If you are new, I apologize. We're closing out a series today that we've been on, but um, maybe I'll help you uh, know where we've been on it in case you want to go back and listen to any of those teachings. But yeah, we're, Dory and I are going to head out for a little vacation time. We've sort of held down the, the fort a little bit with uh, this summer while we've had different things going on. So we're going we're gonna to go camping. And so we're going to take off for a, a few weeks and uh, enjoy that time with, with family and friends. So um, we are, though, always honored when we think about what God has uh, allowed us to do to be a part of this church and, you know, you look around today, and, and I stand up here, and the worship team stands up here, and we look at this three times on Sunday mornings. Uh, I would love for everybody just to get together in one room sometime just to discover that maybe your neighbor goes here and you didn't know it. Uh, 
<laughs> it happens, trust me. Like, how long have you been coming? Um, but it's, it's, a, it's an honor for us to, uh, to do what we do. And, um, you know, we're living in a day when, um, well, we, 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 I don't know if it's just in America. I think it's, it's a tendency of man to sort of gravitate to uh, big personalities. Um, we love our stars. We love those people who speak for a lot of people. And I, don't, I don't think that the church was ever meant to be that. I don't think so. I think people like Billy Graham, I don't think he ever intended to be the only voice. If you read about him, he was a very humble man. Inevitably, God blessed him, but I don't think the church was ever meant to be a gathering of people to listen to one person. I believe when I read my Bible that the church has always been a gathering of people who are called to understand who Jesus is and what he calls us to be so that when we leave here, we'll be the church. But it's, it's a privilege to be here with you today. And we've been walking through a series this summer. It's a, a series based on one word, but a word that you will find permeating Scripture. My hope and dream was that by understanding this one word, that when you open your Bibles and read for yourselves, that you will see that word and go, aha, I know what's behind this. See, the goal is not to be the Bible answer man. I'm not that. The goal is to help the word come alive so that we, as individuals, will open it up and find out what God has for us each as we walk with him. We've been looking at a word called echad. Echad is a Hebrew word for alone. And that word alone is a title. Alone is a title that God gives himself. It's not a title that we gave to God. There's many words in the Bible that we give to God. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Uh, we have all kinds of Hebrew words. Adonai, our Lord. We have all sorts of words that we attribute to God. This is the place where God says, this is who I am. Um, when he tells us who he is, we ought to listen. And he says, I am God alone. In other words, there are no other gods. Any other gods that you read about in the Bible are the gods of man's making with the help of the enemy of God. They're not real. God has no competition, see. But he wants his people, not only the Jewish people, but us, his people, to understand that he alone is God, which means there is no one else to turn to. And there are things that God alone can do. Yes, he has gifted us and enabled us to do a lot of things. And he expects that we would put our best effort into the, to the mix. But he shows up in ways that only he can show up and does things that only he can do. And he asks us to trust him. You see, back when Israel was forming as a nation in Egypt, under a lot of oppression... God sent Moses to extract his people from Egypt, and he took them into the land near Canaan, near the promised land, but there they waited 40 years to prepare to actually take hold of the land that God had promised them a thousand years earlier through Abram. And so 
At around 1100 BC, Joshua crosses the Jordan River with a whole new generation of, of, of Israelites. But during this 40 years, they had, God had demonstrated to them that he alone was God. And so as he's getting ready to uh, prepare the people, as they're about ready to cross into the land, God speaks to Moses and says, tell them this. And Joshua carries this on into the land, reminding the people of what Moses said. And what God says to the people is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. God. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. You know, there's an old saying, more is caught than taught. And if you've been a parent very long, you know that's true. Oftentimes, they catch the things that we don't want them to catch, though. In fact, sometimes they catch things that we haven't taught. <laughs> but just because it is true that more is caught than taught, it doesn't relieve us from the duty to taught. Teach these things again and again to your children. Remind them time and time again of who God is, what God has done in your lives. Tell them the stories of God's, those moments when God has shown up and done what only he can do. Remind them constantly we are a family that believes and trusts in the living God. That's what he means. Repeat them again and again. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you go to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. There is no other he is alone. Write them on your doorposts. That's my doorpost. That's a mezuzah. And that mezuzah is the little passage of scripture you just read. As I walk out the door, I'm reminded, as I walk into the world, I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. But when I return home, I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. And to love my neighbor, my family, as myself. Why? Because I need to be reminded daily. And that's what God said. Remember daily who your God is. It's been a great series. I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been a great time to, to see that phrase throughout Scripture, where God shows up, where he does what only he can do, reminding his people that he is the one they can trust in. It's a reminder that there is no competition with God. How have we been reminded of this? We, we began back in the garden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We, we talked about creation. We talked about that moment when everything is going beautifully just as God 
designed it to be. When he, on the sixth day, he stepped back and said, it is good. In the Hebrew, it is tov, which means this is exactly how I imagined it. Perfect. And he rested. And the Bible says that he walked with man in the cool of the garden in the evenings. I mean, what a kind of a fellowship is that? I mean, that's unbelievable. And even then, Adam had the animals and, and, and God, and God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Isn't that interesting that God said it's, he's, he's alone? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? God alone says it's not good for man to be alone. Well, he didn't. He wasn't alone. He had the animals. He had God. What more did he need? And God said, I'm going to make someone like him. That's what the word Eve means in the Hebrew. It means someone like him. And so he created them, male and female. He created them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, govern it, take care of this place. He didn't just say it to Adam. He said it to Adam and Eve. He says, everything's awesome. But he says, but see that tree right there? Don't eat from the fruit of that. That's the fruit of the knowledge of of good and evil. In other words, there's there's an awareness of something that only I can handle. You can't handle that. Okay, cool. We're good. I mean, look at everything we have. Why would we want that? Well, you know us. The enemy of God whispered in Eve's ear. He's holding out on you. He knows that if you do, you will be what? Like him. You mean God alone is not alone? I could be God too? You mean I could be the master of my own destiny? I could be as smart as him. I could be as wise as him. I'll do that. And we did. And if you look at every temptation that we have suffered from since that time, it's always been that very same thing. I know what you think, God, but I think I can do this better. The very act of disobedience was evidence we didn't have power over evil. It took power over us. We didn't have the knowledge or the wisdom to know how to handle the knowledge of good and evil. But as soon as we were exposed to it, we began to use it against one another. The first words out of Adam's mouth is blame. I find that fascinating. Blame. It's not my fault. It's hers. It's not my fault. It's his. That that snake. Blame. Hmm. We watched how Ichad, God alone, gave way to man thinking he was God. Story after story in the scripture reminded us that we kept trying to be God. It wasn't long before we realized that Ichad gave way to Michad. Me first. And so many stories fell under that category. It was a sermon that Jeff and, and uh, was it Church, Alex did that one Sunday, but we've used that time and time again because it seemed to kind of hit the nail on the head. So many times, it's like, I don't want you alone to be God. I want to be, God. I want to be equal. And we saw so many stories. One of those, before we get to the 12th chapter of, uh, of, of Genesis, the story of Babel. 
And we, we looked at that story and how, how people did the opposite of what God said. He said, I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to people the earth. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And instead they said, no, we're going to gather all the people. We're going to make them all speak the same language and use the same words. And, and we're going to build a tower to the heavens. And literally translated in the Hebrew, we're going to be equal to God. And so God purposely squashes the plan and does to them what he asked them to do in the first place. People the earth create families, cultures, language. Instead, they did the opposite. We talked about unity not being uniformity. God's a very creative God. If he wanted everyone to look alike, he made a mistake. It's brilliant on his part of how creative he is. Just look around. And you're all beautiful, by the way. He did it. Not one of you looks alike. Yeah. He wants difference. He loves that. That's why heaven is referred to as the city of God, not the club of God. Have you ever lived in a city? I grew up in them. You talk about difference. Yeah, that's heaven. Hmm, for God so loved the world. Yeah. We tried to be us alone, and God had to constantly remind us that he alone is God. And then we come to the 12th chapter of Genesis, and things begin to shift. God calls a man named Abram out of Ur, which is, if you look on the maps of the ancient world, the crescent, uh, the, the, uh, the crescent, what was that called? Fertile, the Fertile Crescent, yeah, okay, well, you know, Fertile Crescent, way over in like Middle East is a place called Ur, and Abram there is there, and God says, I want you to go to the land I'm telling you to go to, and I'm going to make a, a people out of you, and so he does, he, he obeys, it's credited to him as righteousness, and so Abram goes to the land of Canaan, and when, when he comes to this place called Shechem, which is now modern-day Nablus, uh, or Sychar in the New Testament, it was Shechem in the Old Testament, all the same place, same dirt. God says something to him right here. And, and the, the ruins of Shechem are right there of, of first century uh, Shechem. But here at the base of two mountains, Mount Ebal on your right, Mount Gerizim on your left. Remember that picture because we're going to talk about Gerizim today, okay? Ebal is a place, uh, these two mountains are a place where it, when you stand down in that valley right, right between and you're, you're standing there, you can hear people in the homes up on the hills talking. It is a natural, uh, what do you call it, an amphitheater. This is where Joshua brings the people of Israel after they've taken possession of the land. He puts some of them up one side, others, others, uh, the others up the other side, and he, he begins to repeat the promises of God, and they repeat back to him. You can, it's, just, it's wonderful. It's amazing. But here, right here on this dirt, Abram stood, and God made a promise to him. He said, if you serve me alone, I'm going uh, to give you land and family. This is where it all took place. This is where he heard, his pro heard God's promise. This is where Jacob, his grandson, built an altar. It's where Joshua renewed the covenant. And it's where Jesus would fulfill the very promise made to Abram 2,000 years earlier. God promises Abram that if he serves him alone, he'll give him the land on which he's standing, a family that will outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore, and that through him he will bless the nations of the world. And Jesus is that blessing. Now, folks, let me say something. We've talked about this so many times. I know that it 
might be boring to some of you, but we, it, it must be repeated time and time again. The fact is, the threefold promise of God is what the Israelites held on to as the promise. The land, the very dirt, the promise of a family that will outnumber the sands of the, of the seashore, and that they would be a blessing to the nations. That threefold promise is what still drives the Jewish people of modern Israel today. If you do not understand the biblical principle of the threefold promise, you cannot understand the news today. Do you think for a moment that they would give up the land that God had promised to them? The very dirt on which they stood was an icon of God's promise of salvation to them. The land to the Israelite is like the cross to the Christian. They held on, and they still hang on. I wish that they would understand that they have indeed blessed the nations through the line of David, a baby born one Christmas. Someday, hopefully, they will. But they've held on to the land, and they've held on to the family. And it was in this place that so much took place. But, but, but they came into the land and, and, and they made promises to God and it wasn't but a few generations and they were drifting away from God because they lived in a land that was not for God. They began to be influenced by the culture around them. Nothing has ever changed since. It is a deliberate choice on our part to follow Christ in the midst of the culture that we live in today. And it is not an easy choice. And it's a choice that must be revisited time and time again. In fact, that's where we're going to go in the, in the next series, uh, September, October, talking about not just why Jesus came, but what he actually said about why he came. And what does that mean to us? So it's a hard thing to do. But what we begin to notice throughout the Old Testament was when God would say, I am God alone, they say, yeah, I know, but, but we're going to trust in this God over here. We're going to trust in this God. We're going to hold on to you because we like you, but we're going to trust this God and this God because this God is going to help us get our plants uh, uh, you know, planted, and this God's going to help our crops grow, and this, this, plant's gonna, this God's going to help our family grow. And God said, I'm going to take care of you, but they didn't listen. And so what we begin to notice in this this. Uh, this time was, God said, appoint judges, and they didn't. And so God, in order to demonstrate his kavod, the Hebrew word for glory, in order to show up in a powerful way, sometimes his people were put at a purposeful disadvantage. Where they were up against the wall, and their only way they could turn was God. So if you read the book of, of Judges, you'll see the stories repeat, but it's a, it's a series of land acquisition stories, taking possession of the promised land. But when you move to the book of, of uh, 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 or Joshua is, when you move to the book of Judges, you're going to see land loss stories. They're going to get to lose the land because of disobedience and not turning to God. We, we came across this thing we'll call drifting from Achad. It was sort of this cycle that seemed to repeat itself Generation after generation, they would cry out to God for help, and God provided a, a leader. And, and, and they would commit to God alone again. You, you, okay, God, you're it, you know. And God would do a miraculous intervention, a rescue. 
And then that's, so, so they, would, they would have a generation of peace. They would, they would talk about it with each other, but they didn't pass it on, you see, because after a generation, they would begin to drift back into sin. And then as sin does what sin does, it began to get a hold of hearts and begin to hold them in slavery and begin to oppress them. And then they would cry out for help and the cycle would repeat itself. And so God appointed the judges. Not once did they ever appoint their own judge, even though they were told, appoint judges. <laughs> yeah. And so we, so we have this cycle. Then we, we moved into the time of the kings. And, and God continues to show up in these stories. And we talked about those stories being the glory stories. You know, when God shows up and does something miraculous, you, you've probably had those moments in your life. When you're up against the wall, you know, there's just no way to turn. And you, you had, a, had a, a, a moment when you just kneeled or you, you fell before God. Maybe it was with your, a spouse or your children or a friend and you, you just cried out. You said, God, we can't do this. We can't figure this out. And God moved in a mighty way. And you knew in that moment it was God. And God rescued and God provided and, and, and you just knew at that point that God had demonstrated that he alone could solve the issue. But you know as well as I do, it doesn't take long until we're back in the same position going, oh God, I'm gonna die. Right? Why do we do that? Why? Hmm. The time of the kings... You know, there's some glory stories, but how do you live between the glory stories? So we were challenged by that. Some of the kings reminded us, Jehoshaphat reminded us, when you're up against the wall, trust God, but start with praise. And God does what only God can do. Hezekiah taught us, when you're up against the wall, when everything, all the chips are down, lay it before God, trust him, do your best, trust God for the rest. Josiah, one of the best kings of Israel, also taught us a very difficult lesson. Never assume you know what God wants to do. Always ask first. Don't assume that just because he's done it this way, this way, this way, this way, every time, he's going to do it this way, this time. Ask, what do you want from me, Lord? What do you want to do? Of course, King David taught us it's not the size of the rock that matters, it's the power behind it. See, we have those wonderful stories, but it moved into the New Testament. We see that throughout, and we saw one in particular, Paul, who said, you know, God demonstrates his power on a regular basis. He can do things that nobody else can do. He says, but I, in fact, I had this problem. And in fact, it was a messenger of, of Satan, Satan sent to torment me. And I begged God three times to remove it from me. He says, admittedly, though, it was sent to keep me humble because I had seen so many things, heard so many things that I might start thinking that I was something special. We discovered that we didn't really know what the thorn was. But this is what we did know that Paul said, God said, no, no, I'm not going to rescue you from that. But this is what I will do. I will give you the grace to handle it every day. My grace is sufficient. And so Paul says, so I boast in my weakness. I boast because the grace 
that saves me is the grace that sustains me every single day. I'm constantly reminded I am not God. Oh, what a gift that is. <laughs> I, I look around sometimes and I see people who are so confused thinking that they are God. And I think, you just need to be set free from that delusion. You ain't, I ain't, only he is. And ever since I realized that, my life has been so much better. What a relief. I don't have to be God. You see, Paul understood the slide that we've thrown up there from time to time. It's at the end of me, I finally see. When I get to the end of the, the road, when I come up against the wall of impossibility, I see that God alone is God. And he is someone I can trust. God alone fulfills his promise to Abraham. And he promises to continue his commitment to us through Jesus. And we discovered that one hot day in a little town called Shechem. Noblest today. A land, a piece of dirt where 2,000 years earlier a man named Abram stood and God said, if you serve me alone, I will give you family. I'll give you this land and I will bless the nations through you. And Jesus came to this place 2,000 years after the promise. He comes back here to what is now a Samaritan territory. And a place to be avoided by the Jews. Why? The Samaritans were a half-breed group of folks. In all of these land loss stories of the Old Testament, as Israelites who had been disobedient to God were allowed to suffer the consequences of their sin, Assyrians took them, Babylonians took them. And at one point, the Assyrians took them away. And because the Assyrians, who wanted to re-people Israel so that they could control it, they decided that the best thing was, was to interbreed them with Assyrians so that it would dismantle the unity of their faith. Those half-breeds were called Samaritans. And so they sent them back into the land. And the Samaritans are still a people group. There's about 700 to 800 of them still alive today. And if you go to Mount Gerizim... The, the land that I, that picture up on the right, or on the left, Gerizim's on the left, there's a temple up the top, and I don't know that you can see it. Maybe you can, way in the background there. That temple is the uh, Samaritan temple, and I've been there. And they still practice the uh, blood ritual sacrifices of the Old Testament there. They believe that they are the people of God, and that when Messiah comes, they will rule the earth. I've met them. I've shaken hands with them. I've talked to them. They are real, a real people group. But they are just as divided from the Jews today as they were 2,000 years ago. They believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, which means they don't believe in all the rest. But in the Pentateuch, you'll find the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus comes to this place where the promise had been made to the well that was dug by the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, whose name, by the way, gets changed to Israel. 
He who wrestles with God and survives. <laughs> and the Bible says in John chapter 4, he had to go through the village. He didn't have to. There are other routes. You see, he was moving from Judea, the southern part of Israel, back to the Galilee. And there are other ways to make it there without going through a Samaritan village because the Jews didn't do that. But John says he had to go. Why? Well, I think he had to go. So this little well that you see here is the actual well. Just 100 years ago, this church wasn't built around it. It was just out in the open. You can still draw water from that. And he sat there one day looking for a drink, and he told us something that we'll never forget. It's found in John chapter 4 if you have your Bibles. If you don't, there's free Bibles in the racks. We'd love for you to read along. John chapter 4, if you're new to the Bible, that's in the New Testament. That means you're a little bit over halfway there into the Bible. Look for John. John chapter 4, verse 4 through 26. I want to read it this morning, but I also, uh, I'm going to put some commentary in the middle of it. So we're going to slow it down a little bit. So when you see parentheses, that's my commentary. That's, do, not, do not ever confuse my words with Scripture, okay? <laughs> but I'm making commentary here because I want to make some observations about what's really going on, okay? John chapter 4, verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. John understood he had to go. His disciples didn't understand that. They, in fact, were shocked. If you go back and read the story, what in the world are you doing? He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which again, modern-day Nablus, it's Shechem in the Old Testament. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So you, you see all of these stories, Jacob and Joseph and Abram, it's all right there. Same dirt, right? Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to, into town to, to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You see, not only do Jews not associate with Samaritans, men didn't talk to strange women in public. This is a double no-no, all right? Jesus answered her, I, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? You see her historical roots? Her Jewish roots there? Who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's really kind of being sarcastic here. We need to understand. She's really kind of saying, I don't need some, some sort of an esoteric, philosophical, abstract spirituality. I don't know what you're talking about. If you want to sell me something, get practical. 
I don't understand what you're talking about, this living water stuff. He, said, he told her, okay, so go call your husband and come on back. Well, I don't have a husband, she replied. Jesus said, you are right. In other words, you are a very truthful woman. This is a compliment. Jesus is make, paying her a compliment. You're an honest person when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. So what you said is quite true. You are a woman of integrity. I love this. So, sir, the woman says, I can see that you're a prophet. Let's go back to theology. <laughs> you are, you, you, okay, you know, I had one nerve left, and you just put your finger on it. Let's go back and get, get away from that. Let's go back and talk abstract theology. Let's go back and talk about things that are just, you know, whatever. So she does. She, she, she literally changes the subject. Our ancestors... Okay, we're going to get into the what? Family argument here. Because he's Jewish and she's Samaritan. Our ancestors, whose family's right, right? Worshipped on this mountain. Which mountain? Gerizim, right behind him, right? But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem on Mount, on Mount Moriah. So all of a sudden she's bringing up the family land thing. You know, why? Because the Jewish people believe in family, land, and blessing. She knows that. Let's, let's just switch the subject from who I'm living with currently to theology. Let's talk theology. Isn't that fun? You're getting too close. Let's, let's talk abstracts. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Uh-oh, he just did away with that one. Huh. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. How could he say that? Is that kind of racist? What's the third promise God makes to Abram? That I will bless you, and through you, you will bless the nations. And who, Paul says, is that blessing? Jesus. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. He's not being racist. He's just being factual. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not going to be bound to a place, a piece of dirt, or a blood family is what he's saying to her. For the kind of worshipers the Father seeks, uh, um, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, well, I tell you what, I know that when Messiah comes, called the Christ, so she knew the threefold promise, right? Right? That's the third promise. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She knew the promise of a redeemer to the world. She knew that promise way back in Genesis chapter 12. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am as the name God gives himself when Moses asked, who should I say sent me? Jesus here is saying to her, I am God alone. Boom. If he had a mic, he'd have dropped it. <laughs> the very promise made 2,000 years earlier is fulfilled right before her eyes. And don't you love the fact that the one who sees it first is a non-religious woman? 
oh, Jesus just broke all the rules, didn't he? The story goes on. She realized in that moment that he indeed was the one promised. Because nobody could have said to her what he had said. Some have speculated this is a woman of ill repute because she came to get water at noon and she had five husbands. Well, we don't know that. And in fact, what we do know about the culture is that when your husband died, you were left alone unless someone from his family would take you on as their wife. It could be that she just married into a really bad family with uh, people who didn't live long. And maybe she picked somebody from another family to live with because, well, it's got to get better than that, right? Because one of the reasons we want to challenge the fact that she, maybe she wasn't a woman of ill repute is because she goes back to the city and the whole city comes out. A woman of, a woman of ill repute probably would not have had that kind of influence. We don't really know much about her, but what we do know is that she was sassy. She argued with Messiah, and Jesus met her right where she was. He was gracious and merciful, and we said, go get your husband. She brought her husband and the city back, and for three or four days, he stayed there, and it says in the Bible that the whole city came to believe. So... Not only was she a woman and a Samaritan, she was the first evangelist. Huh. Uh, you know, the Samaritans didn't believe in the prophets. But one of the prophets said in Isaiah, with joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. <laughs> you see, he alone filled this promise And he alone tells us that he is God alone. And then Jesus, at the end of his ministry, tells us to take these things that I taught you and go into all the world and teach others. And what we need to understand from this whole series is that as you read your Bible and you come across those places where God identifies him as God alone, he is trying to say something to us. He's trying to say that there is no one like me, and I alone am your God. Well, yeah, what a great series, a great review. And, uh, you know, it's really funny. It's been a long sermon series. I mean, I think we're, on, we're ending on eleven which doesn't compare with the Good News series, which took us, I think, into the 20s. But um, really a great thing to kind of go back through and remember all of these stories from really just looking at the Shema and understanding what this word meant alone and why it was important. Um, going through the stories, you know, of Exodus 14 and then, uh, you know, Ichad or Michad when we looked at the New Testament in Antioch and then um, back into the story of Babel right? Uh, stories of Barak and Deborah and Gideon uh, in terms of the judges into the kings, you know, and then really talking about Paul and then and finally David and now this woman at the well. I mean, stories all throughout, I mean, over thousands of years with so many different people. Uh, what are some of the stories that really stuck out to you that, you know, maybe it changed up your mind about something? Hmm. Well, Definitely, um, 
I loved the story of David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. Always loved that story. Um, putting your confidence wholeheartedly in God. I love the story about uh, t- today's sermon, um, Woman at the Well, uh, where she trusted God because he's the one who told her everything she ever did. And um, boy, Gideon, I, I yeah, appreciate Gideon, Gideon because when the odds are stacked against you, uh, when you're trusting in God, you know you're in the right place, hmm. right? Right. And I mean, how many times do we need to hear that story in our daily right. lives? Right. No, I thought I thought was what was really cool is stories. There are some stories, like you said, the woman at the well, you know, David, that I know you love, and we've gotten to hear spoken on a couple times, but. There are some stories in there, like Exodus 14, I don't know, you know, there are some sermons on that, or, you know, Gideon is popular, and, you know, there are some stories in there from the Old Testament, though, in terms of those kings. I think that was the one that was so exciting to me to see how God treats each of these kings differently, and how even a good king, right, if he does something that that God is not doing, I mean, you better be sure that God's in it, because he is the God alone, you know? So I thought some of the stories that maybe got a little bit less press generally that that Jim and our team unpacked were, were really cool. I, uh, I thought it was really interesting, like you said, and I know you were moved by this today, really talking about the woman at the well. So what is it about that story that, especially today as Jim was talking about, it really stuck out to you? I'm always moved um, by the compassion mm. that Jesus has for her, breaking the rules, um, every rule that's there, showing I don't I don't follow the rules, I make the rules, uh, what Jesus does. and But why is he doing it? Because he has compassion on her. That's why mm-hmm. he's not doing that just to, you know, uh, be just this rule breaker. Uh, he's doing that because love, ultimately, love and compassion for this woman. Mm-hmm. And so, oh my goodness, how can I apply that story to me? You know, are there any rules that I should break? in order for love um, to, to be displayed. And whether it's rules that are in society or whether it's rules in my own heart. And I, I love the story of Jesus uh, showing compassion on her. I, I love her. She's not afraid to go tell people about him. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, no matter what her life has been like, she goes back and she tells the city, and what an evangelist she is. And I, I never have ever considered until today uh, the 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 point where um, whatever she's done, she brought a whole city to Jesus. Hmm. And I thought, huh. That's a good point. I've I've never thought about this. This one woman brought everybody out to Jesus, and they all came to him. And so it's just a moving story that what compassion and breaking a few rules, going a different way, uh, can just do in affecting not just one person's life, but tons of people. Yeah, you kind of asked this question. I thought it was cool to think about, you know, who are those people in my life who, because of the rules of religion and not the compassion of Jesus have been left out, right? And can we go to them? And what would we see, you know, if we brought those people that we thought, oh, they would never. Well, what if what if they did? 
you know, and what if they could impact people and, and, uh, and what if we're missing out because we, we don't want to go talk to those people. Yeah. What if we are missing out? What if a whole bunch of other people are missing out right. too because of me? Right. Because of my selfishness or my lack of seeing that. And that to me, it was so cool is the God alone, right? That, that he is the only one to have the ability to, to rescue us, you know, to, to show us a new life. He's the only one who is worthy of all of this. And, uh, and that only one chose to come as Jesus and come and chose to draw the least to himself. And so we should follow his example, right? And being people that are going after those who, um, the society says has no, has no value. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely do that. Yeah. And, I enjoy um, the little theological discussion she wanted to have with him, and what was his response? I mean, he he didn't take the bait. He told her what the truth was. Yeah. You know, the truth is not that uh, I'm bound to any place. Uh, The truth is I want to be in your heart. That's the only place I want to be is in your heart. And uh, what a... It's hard for us, I think, to see what a transforming uh, message that that would be, right. because we're so used to that message over the thousands of years. Yeah, we've been so influenced by it that we've lost the real power. We have, mm-hmm. and uh, but when I go back and think, oh my goodness, this must have been just earth shattering yeah. for this woman who think, yeah. wait, wait, you're not going to Jerusalem, or you know, uh, I mean. You want to be in my heart? What's right. this? And right. I, I've never heard this before. Yeah. No, it's pretty cool. And it's a great story. Again, one of the many stories we've gotten to listen to that point to that our God is different. Our God is alone. There is no one like our God. And so, uh, yeah, we're just so thankful that that's the God that we get to follow. As you're listening today, if you are interested in this God, if if you want to know more about what it means, uh, what Refuge Transformation Partnership mean, what following Jesus means, please email us at podcast at crossroadsnampa.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to talk about your questions here on the podcast. And we'd love to help you get more connected here at the church, but most importantly, more connected to Jesus. And so thanks for listening today, and we'll see you next week.